0: Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Kraus explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds about a year ago we had an asset protection attorney join us and he covered so many of the basics about how physicians can protect themselves and ike devji has been kind enough to join us again and we're going to talk about some very specific things that may affect physicians business owners and the like i'd like to welcome back to the show ike devji hi ike
1: hi Tammy. thanks for having me back good to see you again
0: oh you too So last time we talked, you covered a lot of the basics. Can you give us just kind of a general recap of that?
1: Sure. You and I actually spoke, it's odd, almost a year ago to the day. I think the episode that we taped together last of your podcast was on November 14th of last year. And we covered a lot of basic issues. We covered some of the risk factors of physicians and we reminded doctors that asset protection is important, but that they shouldn't focus solely on their medical malpractice risk we talked about sort of the thinking of yourself as a holistic being and having many different kinds of risks and activities we talked about some of the basics everyone should have in place we talked about basic insurance coverage on the personal side and then we got more specific talked about business insurance coverage beyond just medical malpractice insurance all the other things that you need to protect yourself from Employee lawsuits to data breaches to Medicare audits, right? so we talked about a lot of those issues. We talked about some of the most common fatal mistakes people make in asset protection planning some are some of the things that we have consistently over twenty years devoted to asset protection planning see thousands of people do wrong over and over and it, and it happens so predictably and so reliably that we had a list that you and I went over. So I think those were some of the things that you and I talked about last time that gave us a good introduction to these issues. You know, that's, that's sort of where we left off in our conversation.
0: Well, I thought today maybe we could talk about more specific things. And I read a stat- or I read something a while back that said basically physicians are always at risk of malpractice, being sued by employees, that kind of thing. But their biggest financial risk is actually divorce. So I thought maybe we could talk about prenuptial agreements to start off. Very sexy, very romantic topic, I thought, for today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up. It is something that can cost you half your wealth, and that's a lot. And we know kind of what the divorce statistics are in this country. And everybody goes into a marriage, hopefully, with the best intent and in good faith and plans for it to be forever. But unfortunately, we have the statistics, right? And the statistics tell us that about half of the marriages out there, close to half, will end in divorce. And then it goes up each time you remarry. So 65% of second marriages, 75% of third marriages end in divorce. So it is important that we plan for the marriage and the potential end of the marriage as carefully as we plan for our weddings. And we don't put anywhere near the same amount of thought or effort into that, right? It's more, you know, it's like buying a house. We're all excited about buying the house, and then we haven't thought as much about how do we keep that house running, how do we maintain it, how will we improve it, how will we protect it. And so a lot of the same issues need to go into the thought and planning for any long-term relationship. We also see that a bunch of folks get married at a couple of times of the year. They get married around the holidays, and a huge amount of weddings are coming up in the spring. Right. So you hear there there is a phrase in vernacular, right? Springs. It's that common. So when should prenup planning start? And the answer is today. One of the things that I remind folks about is that in order for a prenuptial agreement to be enforceable, it must be done well in advance of the actual wedding date. To, number one, make sure that the parties have fully disclosed everything, that they have agreed to the prenup, that the other parties, that both parties counsel has had a chance to review it. So the person who you are marrying, you have a lawyer, they have their own lawyer in many cases that will review it. And we also want to make sure that nobody can avoid the prenup by claiming duress. And duress in this context means you sprung this on me a month or a week or whatever before the wedding. And of course, I had to sign it. Otherwise, I would have been humiliated in front of my friends and family and all of the time and money we spend and all of these people who bought plane tickets or whatever it is to come to our wedding would all have lost everything, and I was stuck, so I had to do it. And that is a very common claim that is made when people are presented with a prenuptial agreement at the 11th hour and can make a claim that they felt forced into it and they didn't have a choice. Well, that's a great way to have your prenup set aside, right? So we don't want that. So ideally, this thing is done months in advance of the actual wedding, you fully disclose all of your assets and liabilities. And all of that is put down on paper as to what will happen in the event of a divorce or a separation. What are the party's obligations? And there are lots of things that thing includes. It's not just dividing up what you have or don't have. It can include things like debt, including student debt, kind of a big deal for young doctors to decide how that debt should be divided and who is responsible for what. It can. Cover all kinds of different issues. It can cover repayment of support. It can, you know, if one one person is working while the other one is completing their, you know, their schooling. So there are lots of complex issues that can be addressed and should be addressed, and you should do that with professional help from a domestic relations law specialist well in advance of your wedding. Why am I enunciating that so carefully? Because I don't want you to have a prenup that's drafted by your brother-in-law, the real estate lawyer, because you saved a few bucks. And this is something we actually see smart, professional people like doctors and other business owners do. And please, folks, you wouldn't let a dermatologist do heart surgery. Don't let a real estate lawyer do your prenup get somebody who specializes in this, including the enforcement. Now, my team here in Arizona, for my clients, not only do they do all of this stuff, they even record those prenups and the signing. They video record it so that they we can have the evidence of that person's state of mind, the fact they signed it voluntarily, they asked them questions leading into the signing. Do you know what you're signing? Did you have a chance to review it with your own counsel? Do you agree to it, et cetera, et cetera? Because that can help in the event somebody disputes it in the future.
0: Any advice on how a physician or anyone can approach their fiance about making an agreement like this. It seems like such an unsexy, unromantic thing to do, but I think it I, is important.
1: It, it absolutely is important, Tammy. I'll tell you, I have never talked to somebody going through a revo- divorce who had a prenup who regretted having a prenup, not once in 20 years. I routinely talk to people who regret not having a prenup. Sure. Sure. When they get divorced, and the most common reason when I ask people, I say, "Do a, somebody will call me and say, hey, I think I'm heading for a divorce, and I'll say, great, do you have a prenup? I'm sorry to hear that. You're, do you sure. have a, <laughs> the answer is typically no, and then they add something, and I've heard this phrase or this sentence over and over for 20 years. We got married when we were young. We didn't have anything. We were right out of school, and it didn't seem like it was important at the time, right? Yeah. And so this prenup planning is not necessarily for today. It's for five or 10 or, God forbid, more years down the road when you have built a life and significant assets together and in most cases haven't done a good job at keeping those things separate. So those are some of the lawyer reasons to do it. Now, your question was much more direct. How do you have this bad conversation? How do you have this conversation that might put the other person uh, on edge and have them be defensive? And I think the best way to do it is the most straightforward way. And I have had, this is a question I get from my own clients. Oh, it's going to introduce something negative. Oh, she's going to be mad at me. Oh, he's going to be very offended that I would bring this up. And I say, look, you need to plan for this very carefully. And I get that you are telling me that you're saying that your relationship is not about money. And this makes that official, right? Let's take this money issue, which is the elephant in the room let's address it, let's have a plan for it, and then let's move on and concentrate on the important things, which is each other, the life we're going to build, the family we're going to build, the business we're going to build, whatever it is. And let's take that out of the equation so that we don't have to worry about this. That is at least one semi-tactful way that I've suggested people have a difficult discussion But obviously, it varies from person to person. And some people are both very pragmatic about it and say, yep, this is like insurance or anything else that we need to do. It's just smart planning. And other people think that they are somehow different in their relationship and their love is more true and special than everyone else out of the tens of millions of people that have come before them who thought the same thing. That's at least what I tell people is, you know, somebody says, well, if our relationship is not about money, and I I say, tell them you're right. It's not about money. This proves it.
0: I like that. I like just being direct. <laughs> if you have someone who didn't do a prenup, do you ever get into a situation where you're trying to help them after the marriage has occurred and then they want to put that into writing? You know, if something happens, this is what we want.
1: Yeah. Like a post-nuptial. post-nuptial are out there. They do exist and they can work, but they are certainly not the preferred way to do it, Mm -hmm. simply because they are harder to enforce, they are more open to challenge. We haven't had the same kind of pre-disclosure and agreement that we have had before the marriage. So yes, I think that they do have a place. We do planning for folks that is related to prenup planning or post-nup planning or anti-divorce planning, if you will, after the fact and that is especially true when folks have separate property so either separate property they came into the marriage with meaning money that you had earned or, or real estate whatever it is before the marriage or money you receive after the marriage through gift inheritance or devise. right so if your spouse's parents die and leave them a million-dollar home, which is a very common thing right now, right, with all the boomers and the the way people are aging. If you're in your 40s or 50s right now, you have boomer-age parents that are part of the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the United Mm -hmm. States. Boomers have accumulated a very significant amount of wealth. They are passing that wealth on to their children, and that wealth takes every form imaginable from You know the traditional cash money investment accounts retirement accounts to inheriting homes is going to be one of the biggest ones you know and what do you do when you inherit that home and so we're advising people hey keep those assets separate keep those accounts in an account that is separate and in your name only keep the title to that property that you inherited in your name only and track any community property funds that are used to maintain or improve that property very carefully so that you know how much of it belongs to the community and how much of it belongs to the individual. And like I said, that is another very time-sensitive thing just based on, like I said, we've got trillions of dollars that will change hands over the next decade as the boomers pass away. And they're 40, 50, even in some cases, you know, from late 30s to early 60s, I guess, right, depending on when you had children and how late you had them and how many, there's a group of people that are going to be inheriting very significant wealth, and that will be the subject, is already the subject of many marital disputes.
0: Makes sense. I guess let's take this time to pivot into our next topic for today, and let's talk about some of the IRS and end-of-year tax things that might be coming up since we're kind of getting to the end of the year.
1: Absolutely. Glad you brought that up. So there is a ton of tax planning out there that targets doctors, as you know. You work on the finance side, and I know you track these things carefully, so you are bombarded probably all day with messages on how to save income taxes, how to reduce capital gains taxes on the sale of a business or a piece of property, et cetera, et cetera. And look, I am all for tax planning, right? I think that paying more taxes than you legally have to is also bad asset protection planning, right? So we tell our clients pay every dollar that the law requires and don't leave a tip, right? (laughs) Don't pay more than you have to. So I'm all for tax avoidance planning. Unfortunately, there is a fine line, especially in marketing between tax avoidance and tax evasion, right? The evasion is the criminal one. (laughs) <laughs> Avoidance is legal. <laughs> evasion is illegal. And so every year, uh, starting in the fourth quarter of every year, there is a huge push to sell high-income professionals, including physicians, tax planning of different kinds. And in many cases, that tax planning that these folks are targeted with is fraudulent or abusive. It is, and no, and, and one thing that we need to remind everybody listening to this is, That no matter who you pay for tax advice, no matter how much you pay them, no matter how much of a genius they claim to be or you believe they are, the person who is legally responsible for the information on that tax return is you. cannot say this guy told me to set up a captive insurance company and I didn't realize the way it was set up was a scam. Or this person told me to invest in a conservation easement and it sounded reasonable and they showed me that conservation easements, conservation easements are a real thing, but they didn't tell me that claiming a deduction of 500% of the amount we invested would be abusive and that the IRS would object to that, right? All kinds of things out there. Some of them are targeting business sellers right now, especially since we have so many practices changing hands and being sold to private equity. There are a whole bunch of scams out there that target folks who are looking to avoid or reduce capital gains tax. One of them that I've written about is called the Irrevocable, pure, complex trust scam. Basically, they get people to put assets into a trust, have the trust make the sale, and claim that everything is then tax-free. And what they leave out is, hey, somebody always has to pay the tax. So it's either going to be you or the trust, right? So there's no magic bag of beans out there that just vaporizes the tax liability. It can pass who's, it can change who's responsible. It can create. Conditions that will allow you to defer taxes, but you will not be able to not pay them. You asked about the IRS dirty dozen. That is something that I love because every year the IRS summarizes the top current risks to taxpayers and they call it their dirty dozen. This year, one of the things that we're seeing right at the top of their list is the employee retention credit. You may have seen this thing advertised that says, hey, if you have employees that you had during COVID, we can get you a tax refund of up to $26,000 for every person who worked for you. And technically, that little bit of information that I just regurgitated is true. You can get up to $26,000, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a whole bunch of fine print that goes to who was qualified, what kind of employees, what the effect on your business was, when they worked there, what quarters of the year they worked in. It's only for specific quarters of 2020 and 21 where you can do this. So if somebody is just going out there and filing these returns for maximum return because they are taking a contingency, fee, right? So a lot of these outfits that are saying, hey, we're going to get you $26,000 per employee, and we're going to take 20% of that. And you don't have any out-of-pocket expense, and you don't pay us anything unless we actually get you this money, right? That sounds like a great deal. And in fact, there are many legitimate ERC outfits out there that are doing this. But there are even a greater or at least an equal number of them that don't know what they're doing, that aren't following the regs. That don't offer audit defense. So that's one of the things I told my clients to look for is hey, if you're signing up with a firm, a tax lawyer, a CPA, an ERC specific firm that's advertising on TV and social media right now, they're advertising nonstop, you better make sure that you have a contractual obligation with them that says if this gets audited, they are going to defend it they are going to go to the irs and explain what they deducted how they deducted it how it was calculated and defend it for you so you don't end up spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars doing that yourself and look it's one thing if you take a small deduction because you had 10 employees but what if you have 300 employees and you get a multi-million dollar deduction and you owe that back to the irs because it wasn't filed correctly plus interest and penalties, Mm. right? So this is why it is important to work with professionals who have malpractice liability, who have insurance and who do audit defense. So we talked about ERC or employee retention credits. Obviously, identity theft, phishing, scams related to tax filing are at an all-time high. So the IRS Dirty Dozen list doesn't just include scams that are targeted at making you file false returns. There are also lots of things out there that are pretending to be your CPA or the IRS or some tax form that keep showing up in your email. And those are phishing and smishing and ID theft attacks. So that is a big deal. The IRS is concerned about fuel credit claims. There are fuel credits available for folks who use a lot of gasoline and fuel for off-road businesses, meaning things like farming and land development and things like that. You can't take those credits for driving your car. There are promoters out there that are telling people they can. Fake charities are on the list. One of the big problems we see is social media itself. And you and I are both on social media, right? Your podcast, full of good, real information is on social media. I do a lot of stuff on social media, but there are a ton of bad folks who are giving bad advice in 15-second snippets, especially on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. And I see these cringe uh, legal, legal advice and tax advice from these influencers all the time saying, you want to drive a Bentley Bentayga? Want to drive a new G-Wagon? Write it off, right? And they don't tell you. All of the detail that goes with that, that, hey, you have to own a business, it has to be used a certain percent for business, you have to have a minimum percentage of usage, and you can only write off the percentage you actually use it for business, right? So that is a lot different from, hey, buy a $300,000 car and write it off, make the government pay for it. Very, very different, right? Two very different realities, But we see the way these things are sold and we see these advice given. We see people saying, set up an LLC, go out and open a line of credit and immediately have access to $50,000 and all these weird things that these guys are promoting on social media. Be very, very careful. There is a tiny kernel of truth in them and they build a scam upon that. For the higher income folks who might be listening we're seeing there's some schemes aimed specifically at them, like charitable remainder annuity trusts and monetized installment sales for um, those looking to avoid capital gains, tax exposure. Obviously, captive insurance is a big one that targets doctors and practice owners in particular. Those have been used to uh, used abusively. We talked about conservation easements offshore planning, whether it is a Malta trust or a Malta pension or an offshore trust or a Puerto Rican captive insurance, there are a ton of sexy sounding offshore options out there that be, that are being sold as tax planning. I will tell you that I use offshore tools. I've got thousands of offshore trusts in place as asset protection vehicles as, and estate planning vehicles for high net worth individuals. None of them have a tax benefit, not one, not one dollar right so when we see a lot of these things being marketed the way that they are we know that they are being used incorrectly by the wrong people because they sound exciting and it creates a neat sales story so that is some of the tax issues that we're looking at as i said someone always pays the tax so one one thing that we might leave your listeners with is the rule of 3 if it goes in tax free grows tax free and comes out tax free probably fraud. That's a good rule. (laughs)
0: Don't
1: get three for three. You get two out of three on a good day. You get one out of three with a lot of different options. On a good day, you get two out of three. But if you you see something that gives you all three, make sure your attorney, uh, your tax attorney or CPA reviews it.
0: Now, before the show, we were talking a little bit about business owners and a new act that actually is going to affect all the people that have LLCs. Can you tell us a little bit about the Corporate Transparency Act?
1: You bet. And this is a big one that is going to sneak up on folks. The U.S. government, as you know, is consistently combating tax fraud, money laundering. Part of it is under the Patriot Act. Part of it is they're looking to stop organized crime. They're looking to stop the funding of terrorism. Lots of different things, all legitimate purposes that they want to know Who owns companies? Who is the real owner of these companies? Right. And a lot of legal planning is sold with a false promise of secrecy. You see, get your Wyoming LLC, get your Delaware LLC, get your trust in this state, et cetera, et cetera. And they, you know, and these get your land trust, which is another thing that, you know, guys in my business laugh about because these tools basically provide some privacy. And look, Privacy is something that we aim for in our planning, right? If we're dealing with somebody uh, and setting up a plan, we don't want everybody with Google to be able to put that client's name in and immediately see that, oh, they own this partnership that owns these three LLCs, that owns these three pieces of property, right? Let's make them do the work is the way I explain it to clients. But I also say that, look, there is such a thing as private, but there is no such thing as secret. And so a lot of people, create entities and either don't pay taxes on them properly or are doing something else that is not in compliance with what the government demands. So the government has a new, there's a new act called the Corporate Transparency Act that requires the disclosure of beneficial owner information, which they refer to as BOI for short. And that beneficial owner information will now need to be disclosed for millions of LLCs and other corporate structures to the government. In fact, I wrote an article on this that introduced some of the basics last, just two weeks ago for my column in Physician's Practice, where I outlined some of the basic facts, you know, the commonly asked questions about when does it start and things like that. And I can even send you a link to that if, in case you want to post it and give folks some more detail. But basically, here's the ten thousand foot view summary. Starting January 1st of next year of 2024, any pre existing entity that's out there that is required to comply, and assume that if you own an LLC or an S corp or a C corp or whatever, that it probably is subject to this disclosure, these disclosure requirements, will have 12 months to complete the beneficial owner reporting information on that entity to the U.S. government. So that's for anything that existed before the end of this year. They'll have 12 months to comply. Any new entity that's created after January 1st will have 30 days to comply. So if you're setting up a new LLC or whatever, you'll have 30 days to comply. And the information that you will have to include will have to include who the owners are, who has significant control over the entity, even if it's not an owner, if there's a manager or some other corporate executive that exercises significant control. And you will even have to disclose who helped set this up. Was it you? Was it a lawyer? Did your CPA do it? You have to include your, you may have to include your lawyer's name. You may have to include the name of the paralegal that that did it in their office and did the filing for you. So all of that has to be disclosed. So of course, whenever we have anything like this, there's a whole lot of panic and a lot of conspiracy theories about where this information is going and what the government is doing. And are there 85,000 IRS agents sneaking around at night coming to get me? No, relax. All right. Most of this information is already out there either publicly or at least the government already has it, right? If you have an EIN number for a tax ID number for any corporate entity, they already know who's responsible to some degree. But now they just want some more details on that. And the information they're gathering is not publicly disclosed. So I want everybody to take a deep breath. No, if you have your Wyoming LLC set up for privacy, they're not suddenly going to be publicly discoverable because of this. But it is something that you need to be aware of. It is something you need to comply with. And if you do not comply, the fine will be $500 per day per entity. Now think about all the people listening to this who say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't own a business. What well, Do you have three old dormant LLCs that you set up that you were going to maybe use for a rental property that you never did? You have to comply. Do you have rental properties in an LLC? And you're not maybe thinking of that as a business. You're thinking, well, that's just how I hold my rental home you have to comply with that. You have an operating business. Well, obviously you have to comply there. Do you have a business that is just on paper that receives royalties or income? So some people might say, well, I have an LLC set up and it receives the royalties for my intellectual property on the surgical device I invented or helped invent. That's a business too. So all of these folks are going to be subject to this same level of compliance. And the good news is it's probably not going to be complicated. It's just going to be a tedious process. You're going to do this electronically. They have a website that the government is setting up where you go in and enter this information. It's a secure website, as secure as, I guess, any website, right? We know what that looks like these days. And... That information is not publicly disclosed. You cannot start reporting until January 1st when that website is supposed to go live. If you have LLCs that are dormant and you don't want to have to go through this hassle, consider dissolving them officially, right? And that might mean getting the help of a CPA or a financial advisor, or I'm sorry, or an attorney, if you don't know how to do that yourself. Um, you so there there is a formal process for dissolution. Dissolution does not mean I stopped using it and I threw the papers away. And we get that response from people sometimes. I'll say, Well, you listed these three LLCs and you've got a line through them. You don't have those anymore. Oh no, we don't use them. We got rid of them. What did you do with them? We just we just didn't use them. We just threw the paper. We don't have the paperwork, we threw it away. Well, that's not dissolved. Okay. That's dormant. So if you have an LLC or some other corporate entity that was dormant before, since at least 2020, from 2020 on, it hasn't been used, that may be exempt. If you have one that was created after 2020 and you don't want to have to report it, dissolve it properly. And if you have one that you want to keep or haven't been actively using, then you certainly need to report.
0: Do you go to the irs website to find this information
1: it's not the irs it is fincen and i actually pull up the link for you right now and tell you exactly where to go but there is a link where you can go and i actually went through their entire fact and disclosure document that tells us you know what do you have to report when do you have to report it all of those things and that website is actually excellent. It has all kinds of details about when do you report, who has to report, everything else. It has checklists to see if you're exempt. And it is actually on the FinCEN.gov website, which is FinCEN, as is F-I-N-C-E-N. And I can send you the link in case you want to post it with this episode.
0: That would be great. Uh,
1: And that way, everybody can see what I saw. And whenever there's anything dealing with the IRS or the government, the first place I go and look is what did they say? What did they themselves put out about this? What what materials have they provided? And in some cases, even for an experienced attorney like myself, it's so complex or so long that it is really hard to go through it all or even to understand it. And then I look to analysis done by other experts where they've summarized these things. And the FinCEN.gov website has this whole section on beneficial ownership reporting, including reference materials, business resources, tells you who's exempt, has little charts and and diagrams that you know you can use or infographics to figure out what I have to report, when you have to report it. So all of that information is there. And I will make sure that your listeners have the link so they can see it. And I'll also send you the link to the little summary I did that boiled at least some of the basics down to one page.
0: That's amazing. Ike, you are always such a wealth of information. I'm so glad you agreed to come back on the show. If People wanted to get in touch with you to try and help them protect their assets, their wealth, their marriage, their whatever, how would they get in touch with you?
1: Well, thank you for asking. I think the pretty easy way is again through my website, which is proassetprotection.com. That's PRO, like professional. That website has a contact form to reach me. It has the phone number. It also, perhaps more importantly, has a ton of detail and articles on everything you and I have discussed today. And there's no sign up. There's no click funnel. You don't have to give me your email address. You can just go on there and read it. And so that information is there for anyone who wants to find more of it. And as I said, well, I'll send you a couple of links to go with this. So people who may have an interest in exploring or investigating some of the things we talked about have something specific to look at that can help them.
0: I know you've been a prolific author. You've spoken at multiple national conferences. I think you were even at the White Coat Investor Conference last March. Your website really does have so much information available if people are trying to learn more before they get with a lawyer to help them.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad it's helpful.
0: And you work with clients across the nation, correct?
1: Correct. We serve clients in all 50 states and from about 14 foreign countries who have significant U.S. holdings.
0: That's amazing. Thank you again for coming on the show today. And I hope you'll all tune in again next week for Grand Rounds.